0: I'm Peter Medic, and you're listening to Episode 3 of Return of the Birds. If this is the first time you've dropped into the story, you might want to listen to the previous episode, but you're welcome to stick around. Right quick, before we start, I want to give a special thank you to the hundreds of women and men in the field who recorded and cataloged the bird calls and songs I used over the course of this audiobook. You are doing selfless and important work. Thank you. Please visit 44from26.com to find show notes for each episode. The show notes include links back to the Macaulay Library bird vocalizations we used in this episode, images of the birds mentioned in the episode, and more. With me, the cuckoo does not arrive till June. And often the goldfinch, the kingbird, the scarlet tanager delay their coming till then. In the meadows, the bobolink is in all his glory. high pastures the field sparrows sings his breezy vesper hymn. And the woods are unfolding to the music of the thrushes. The cuckoo is one of the most solitary birds of our forest. And is strangely tame and quiet, appearing equally untouched by joy or grief, fear or anger. Something remote seems ever weighing upon his mind. His note or call is as of one of lost or wandering, and to the farmer is prophetic of rain. Amid the general joy and the sweet assurance of things, I love to listen to the strange clairvoyant call heard a quarter of a mile away from the depths of the forest. There's something particularly weird and monkish about it. Wordsworth's lines about the European species apply equally well to ours. Quote, O blithe newcomer, I have heard, I hear thee and rejoice. O cuckoo, shall I call thee bird? Or but a wandering voice? Why am I lying in the grass? Thy loud note smites my ear. From hill to hill it seems to pass, at once far off and near. Thrice welcome, darling of the spring, even yet thou art to me no bird. But an invisible thing, a voice of mystery. (coughs) Quote. <coughs> the black build is the only species found in my locality. The yellow build abounds farther south. Their note or call is nearly the same. The former sometimes suggests the voice of a turkey. The yellow billed will take up his stand in a tree and explore its branches till he has caught every worm. He sits on a twig, and with a peculiar swaying movement of his head examines the surrounding foliage. When he discovers his prey, he leaps upon it in a fluttering manner. In June the black billed makes a tour through the orchard and garden, regaling himself upon the canker worms. At this time, he is one of the tamest of birds and will allow you to approach within a few yards of him. I have even come within a few feet of one without seeming to excite his fear or suspicion. He is quite unsophisticated, or else royally indifferent. The plumage of the cuckoo is a rich, glossy brown and is unrivaled in beauty by any other neutral tint with which I am acquainted. It is also remarkable for its firmness and fineness. Notwithstanding the disparity in size and in color, the black-billed species has certain peculiarities that remind one of the passenger pigeon. His eye, with its red circle, the shape of his head, and his motions on alighting and taking flight, quickly suggest the resemblance, though in grace and speed, when on the wing, he is far inferior. His tail seems disproportionately long, like that of the red thrush, and his flight among the trees is very still, Contrasting strongly with the honest clatter of the robin or pigeon. Have you heard the song of the field sparrow? If you've lived in a pastoral country with broad upland pastures, you could hardly have missed him. Wilson, I believe, calls him the grass finch. And was evidently unacquainted with his powers of song. The two white lateral quills in his tail and his habit of running and skulking a few yards in advance of you as you walk through the fields are sufficient to identify him. Not in meadows or orchards, but in high breezy pasture grounds will you look for him. His song is most notable after sundown, when other birds are silent, for which reason he has been aptly called the Vesper Sparrow. The farmer following his team from the field at dusk catches his sweetest strain. His song is not so brisk and varied as that of the song sparrow. Being softer and wilder, sweeter and more plaintive. Add the best parts of the lay of the latter to the sweet vibrating chant of the wood sparrow. And you have the evening hymn of the Vesper bird. The Poet of Plain Unadorned Pastures. Go to those broad, smooth, uplying fields where the cattle and sheep are grazing and sit down in the twilight on one of these warm, clean stones and listen to his song. On every side, near and remote, from out the short grass which the herds are cropping, the strain rises. Two or three long, silver notes of peace and rest ending in some subdued trills and quavers constitute each separate song. Often you will catch only one or two of the bars, the breeze having blown the minor part away. Such unambitious, quiet, unconscious melody. It is one of the most characteristic sounds in nature. The grass, the stones, the stubble, the furrow, the quiet herds, and the warm twilight among the hills are all subtly expressed in this song. This is what they are at last capable of. The female builds a plain nest in the open field, without so much as a brush or thistle or tuft of grass to protect it or mark its site. You may step upon it, or the cattle may tread it into the ground. But the danger from this source, I presume, the bird considers less than that from another. Skunks and foxes have a very impertinent curiosity. As Finchy well knows, and a bank or a hedge or a rank growth of grass or thistles that might promise protection and cover to mouse or bird, these cunning rogues would be apt to explore most thoroughly. The partridge is undoubtedly acquainted with the same process of reasoning, for, like the Vesper bird, she too nests in open, unprotected places, avoiding all show of concealment. Coming from the tangled and most unpenetrable parts of the forest to the clean, open woods, where she can command all the approaches and fly with equal ease in any direction. Another favorite sparrow, but little noticed, is the wood or bush sparrow. Its size and form is that of the socialists, but is less distinctly marked in being of a duller reddish tinge. He prefers remote, bushy, heathery fields, where his song is one of the sweetest to be heard. It is sometimes very noticeable, and especially early in spring. I remember sitting one bright day in the still leafless April woods, when one of these birds struck up a few rods from me, repeating its lay at short intervals for nearly an hour. It was a perfect piece of wood music, and was, of course, all the more noticeable for being projected upon such a broad, unoccupied page of silence. Uttered at first high and leisurely, but running very rapidly toward the close, which is low and soft. Still keeping among the unrecognized, the wide-eyed vario, or flycatcher, deserves particular mention. The song of this bird is not particularly sweet and soft. On the contrary, it's a little hard and shrill, like that of the indigo bird, or oriole. But for brightness, volubility, execution, and power of imitation, he is unsurpassed by any of our northern birds. His ordinary note is forcible and emphatic, but as stated, not especially musical. Hiding himself in the low, dense undergrowth and eluding your most vigilant search as if playing some part in a game. But in July or August, If you're on good terms with the sylvan deities, you may listen to a far more rare and artistic performance. Your first impression will be that Cluster of Azalea, or that clump of swamp huckleberry, conceals three or four different songsters, each vying with the others to lead the chorus. Such a melody of notes snatched from half the songsters of the field and forest and uttered with the utmost clearness and rapidity, I'm sure you cannot hear short of the haunts of the genuine mockingbird. If not fully and accurately repeated, there are at least suggested the notes of the robin, wren, catbird, high hole, goldfinch, and song sparrow. The pip-pip of the last is pronounced so accurately that I verily believe it would deceive the bird herself, and the whole uttered in such rapid succession, it seems as if the movement that gives the concluding note of one strain must form the first note of the next. The effect is very rich, and to my ear, entirely unique. The performer is very careful not to reveal himself in the meantime. Yet, there is a conscious air about the strain that impresses me, with the idea that my presence is understood and my attention courted. A tone of pride and glee, and occasionally of bantering, is discernible. I believe it's only rarely, and when he is sure of his audience, that he displays his parts in this manner. You are to look for him, but not in tall trees or deep forests but in low, dense shrubbery about wet places where there are plenty of gnats and mosquitoes. Winter Wren is another marvelous songster, in speaking of whom it is difficult to avoid superlatives. He is not so conscious of his powers and so ambitious of effect as the white eyed flycatcher. Yet, you will be no less astonished and delighted on hearing him. He possesses the fluency and copiousness for which the wrens are noted. And besides those qualities, and what is rarely found conjoined with them, a wild, sweet, rhythmical cadence that holds you entranced. I shall not soon forget that perfect June day when, loitering in the low ancient hemlock wood, in whose cathedral aisles and coolness and freshness seems perennial, the silence was suddenly broken by a strain so rapid and gushing and touched with such a wild sylvan plaintiveness that I listened in amazement. And so shy and coy was the little minstrel that it came twice to the woods before I was sure to whom I was listening. In the summer, he is one of those birds of the deep northern forests. That, like the speckled Canada warbler or the hermit thrush, only the privileged ones here. The distribution of plants in a given locality is not more marked and defined than that of the birds. Show a botanist a landscape, and he will tell you where to look for the lady slipper, the columbine, or the harebell. On the same principles, the ornithologist will direct you where to look for the greenlets, the wood sparrow, or the chewink. In adjoining counties, in the same latitude, and equally inland, but possessing a different geological formation and different forest timber, you will observe quite a different class of birds. And in a land of the beech and sugar maple, I do not find the same songsters that I know thrive in the oak, chestnut, and laurel. In going from a district of the old Ked sandstone to where I walk upon the old plutonic rock not fifty miles distant, I miss in the woods the veery, the hermit thrush, the chestnut-sided warbler, and the blue-backed warbler, the green-backed warbler, the black and yellow warbler, and many others and find in their stead the wood thrush, the chewink, the red start, the yellow throat, the yellow-breasted flycatcher, the white eyed flycatcher, the quail, and the turtle dove. In my neighborhood here in the highlands, the distribution is very marked. South of the village, I invariably find one species of birds, north of it, another. In one locality, full of azalea and swamp huckleberry, I'm always sure of finding the hooded warbler. In a dense undergrowth of spice brush, witch hazel, and alder, I meet the worm-eating warbler, In a remote clearing covered with heath and fern, or here and there a chestnut and an oak, I go to hear in July the wood sparrow. And returning by a stumpy shallow pond, I am sure to find the water thrush. Only one locality within my range seems to possess attractions for all comers. Here one may study almost the entire ornithology of the state. It is a rocky piece of ground, long ago cleared, but now fast relapsing into wilderness and freedom of nature, and marked by those half-cultivated, half-wild features which birds and boys love. It is bounded on two sides by the village and a highway, crossed at various points by carriage roads, and threaded in all directions by paths and byways along which soldiers, laborers, and truant boys are passing at all hours of the day. It is so far escaping from the axe and the brush hook as to have open communication with the forest and the mountain beyond by straggling lines of cedar, laurel, and blackberry. The ground is mainly occupied with cedar and chestnut, with an undergrowth in many places of heath and bramble. The chief feature, however, is a dense growth in the center, consisting of dogwood, water beech, swamp ash, alder, spice bush, hazel, etc., with a network of Smilax and frost grape. A little zigzag stream and a draining of a swamp beyond, which passes through this tanglewood, accounts for many of its features and productions, if not for its entire existence. Birds that are not attracted by the heath or the cedar and chestnut are sure to find some excuse for visiting, this miscellaneous growth in the center. Most of the common birds literally throng this idle wild. And I've met here many of the rarer species, such as the great crested flycatcher, the solitary warbler, the blue-winged swamp warbler, the worm-eating warbler, the fox sparrow, etc. The absence of all the birds of prey and the great number of flies and insects both the result of proximity to the village are considerations which no hawk-fearing, peace-loving minstrel passes over lightly. Hence, the popularity of the resort. But the crowning glory of all these robins, flycatchers, and warblers is the wood thrush. More abundant than all other birds, except the robin and the catbird, he greets you from every rock and shrub. Shy and reserved when he first makes his appearance in May, before the end of June, he is tame and familiar and sings on the tree over your head or on the rock a few paces in advance. A pair even built their nest and reared their brood within 10 or 12 feet of the piazza of a large summer house in the vicinity. But when guests commenced to arrive in the piazza to be thronged with gay crowds, I noticed something like dread and foreboding in the manner of the mother bird. And from her still quiet ways and habit of sitting long and silently within a few feet of the precious charge, it seemed as if the dear creature had resolved, if possible, to avoid all observation. If we take the quality of melody as the test, the wood thrush, hermit thrush, and the veery thrush stand at the head of our list of songsters. The Mockingbird undoubtedly possesses the greatest range of mere talent, the most varied executive ability, and never fails to surprise and delight one anew at each hearing. But being mostly an imitator he never approaches the serene beauty and sublimity of the hermit thrush the word that best expresses my feelings on hearing the mockingbird is admiration though the first emotion is one of surprise and incredulity that so many and such various notes should proceed from one throat is a marvel and we regard the performance with feelings akin to those we experience on witnessing the astounding feats of the athlete or gymnast And this, notwithstanding many of the notes imitated, have all the freshness and sweetness of the originals. The emotions excited by the songs of these thrushes belong to a higher order springing as they do from our deepest sense of beauty and harmony of the world. The wood thrush is worthy of all, and more than all, the praises he has received. And considering the number of his appreciative listeners, it is not a little surprising that his relative and equal the hermit thrush should have received so little notice. Both great ornithologists, Wilson and Audubon, are lavish in their praises of the former, but have little or nothing to say of the song of the latter. Audubon says it's sometimes agreeable, but evidently has never heard it. all I'm glad to find, is more discriminating, and does the bird fuller justice. It is quite a rare bird, of very shy and secluded habits, being found in the middle and eastern states during the period of song, only in the deepest and most remote forests, usually in damp and swampy localities. On this account, the people in the Anirondack region call it the Swamp Angel. Its being so much of a recluse accounts for the comparative ignorance that prevails in regard to it. The cast of its song is very much like that of the wood thrush, and a good observer might easily confound the two. But hear them together, and the difference is quite marked. The song of the hermit is in a higher key. and is more wild and ethereal. His instrument is a silver horn, which he wins in the most solitary places. The song of the wood thrush is more golden and leisurely. Its tone comes near to that of some rare stringed instrument. One feels that perhaps the wood thrush has more compass and power. If he could only let himself out. But on the whole, he seems a little short of the pure, serene, hymn-like strain of the hermit. Yet those who have heard only the wood thrush may well place him first on the list. He is truly a royal minstrel, and considering his liberal distribution throughout our Atlantic seaboard perhaps contributes more than any other bird to our sylvan melody. One may object that he spends a little too much time in tuning his instrument. Yet his careless and uncertain touches reveal its rare compass and power. He is the only songster of my acquaintance excepting the canary that displays different degrees of proficiency in the exercise of his musical gifts. Not long since, while walking one Sunday in the edge of an orchard adjoining a wood, I heard one that so obviously and unmistakably passed all of his rivals that my companion, though slow to notice such things, remarked it wonderingly. and with one accord, we pause to listen to so rare a performer. It was not different in quality, so much as in quantity. Such a flood of it. Such copiousness. Such long, trilling, accelerating preludes. Such sudden, ecstatic overtures... It would have intoxicated the dullest ear. It was really without a peer, a master artist. Twice afterwards, I was conscious of having heard the same bird.
1: You listen to Return of the Birds, a serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin, written by John Burroughs and read by Peter Medic, with bird vocalizations courtesy of the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Recording, editing, mastering, and post-production by 44 from 26 in Bellingham, Washington. Recorded at One Fine Studio in Bellingham, Washington. This has been a presentation of 44 from 26, a family-owned and operated media experiment. We invite you to join the growing 44 from 26 community at patreon.com forward slash 44 from 26. For more updates, visit our Patreon page or check out 44from26.com. Wake Robin is available for digital download in e-reader format at archive.org and gutenberg.org. This is 44 from 26.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Return of the Birds. Any flubs, goofs, and mispronunciations or errors are mine. If you hear one or two and want to tell me about them, stop by 44from26.com forward slash contact and click the button to leave a voicemail or send an email. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Peter. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend or two or tell one friend, and then dare another. It will really impact the trajectory of our project. Thank you. Till next time, chirp away.